0: Well, good morning. good morning. Well, we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the appointed Psalms as we make our Lenten pilgrimage to the cross and tomb of Jesus, to Good Friday and Holy Saturday. As we encounter these Psalms along our pilgrimage, each one of them gives us a gift for the journey, as we've been discovering. On Ash Wednesday, we received the gift of true perspective. True perspective concerning our own broken human condition as sinful, frail, and finite, that is mortal. And also a true perspective concerning God as our infinite, loving, and merciful Father. Last Sunday, Psalm 51 gave us the gift of cleansing, cleansing from sin. A gift that only God can give and one that only God can make effectual by his work of creation to creating us a new and clean heart. This Sunday, we stop to rest along our Lenten pilgrimage and to receive another gift, this time from Psalm 33. And Psalm 33 gives us the gift of patient trust, patient trust. Now, this gift of patient trust comes to us, as it were, as a locked box, like a jewelry box with a key. Now, a locked jewelry box would be a lousy gift if it didn't have a key. I mean, what would you really do with it? I mean, there is some measure that where you could just have pleasure in it. If it's a, if it's a wonderfully beautiful box on the outside, you might be able to gain pleasure from just looking at that box. But that would be ultimately disappointing at some because you'd want to know what's the potential on the inside, the potential beauty that you see there, the potential of its utility of holding your jewelry for you, or maybe just the potential of finding something inside that might be precious. And if Psalm 33 simply said to us, patiently trust, just trust better, patiently trust, and left it at that, then we might think that such An exhortation may express a beautiful and true sentiment, but we're missing out on the full potential of its beauty and utility if we're given such a gift without the key to unlock it. But thankfully, Psalm 33 is a good gift giver. It doesn't just give us a locked box without the key, it gives us this jewelry box with the key to unlock it. And here's the key that Psalm 33 gives us to unlock this gift of patient trust. Put less confidence in yourself and more confidence in God as he is revealed in Jesus. Put less confidence in yourself and more confidence in God as he is revealed in Jesus. This unlocks for the psalmist patient trust. This is the key. Throughout Psalm 33, a contrast is established between human strength and wisdom and between divine strength and wisdom. Just turn with me to the beginning of the psalm. You can find it in your prayer books. Those are the red books with the little Jerusalem cross on the front page 307. You can turn to the ESV Bibles there, but I'm looking I'm going to be engaging with the text as it comes out of the prayer book. The first three first three verses of our psalm provide a call to praise God with the gifts of human culture. There's the implication there of making instruments to do this praise, the skill that needed to play these instruments, the creativity to write these songs and their lyrics, the music and their lyrics, and then the skill to play and sing them. Verses 4 through 7 give the initial motivation then for that praise, the the cause for praise. Why praise God? Verse 4, because his word is true. And all his works are faithful. That is, they endure, they last, they're steadfast. Why praise God? Verse 5, because his character is righteousness and justice. And as such, as, as, as a God full of justice and righteousness, God then fills all of creation with his goodness, it says. And that word for goodness is hesed. His hesed love, his un. Failing, never-ending, loving-kindness. Why praise God? Verse 6. Because his word and breath. Notice the Trinitarian language there. God's word and breath. His Son, Jesus, and Spirit. His word and breath. By them he made the heavens and the earth. Why praise God? Verse 7. Because by his powerful hand, he gathered the waters together, setting boundaries for the seas, just as you would by pouring water in a jar. And in response to these reasons for praise and this call for praise, the psalmist then encourages all the earth and all of humanity dwelling in it to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord, standing in awe of his creative power and his steadfast character and the fear of the Lord here refers not to terror but to a reverent awareness a reverent awareness of one's absolute dependence on God for all of life for wisdom to guide one's life for strength to protect and deliver it from danger and death And this is exactly where the psalmist turns then in verses 9 through 18 to clearly contrast between the wisdom and strength that God possesses and that of humans, the wisdom and strength we possess apart from the fear of God. Look with me at verses 9 and 12 again. For he spoke, referring to God, and it was done. He commanded And it stood fast, it lasted, it endured. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught, to nothing. He makes the devices of the peoples to be of no effect and cast out the counsels of princes. The counsel of the Lord shall endure forever. Are we noticing the contrast here? And the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and blessed are the people he has chosen for himself to be his inheritance. The psalmist is clear. God's wisdom, his word, his commands, his counsels are effective and they endure, they last. Whereas the word, the commands, the counsels of the wisest of humanity, those who lead us, it's Princes, the national leaders, are ineffective and short-lived apart from the fear of the Lord. And God causes their wisdom and counsel to come to nothing and to be of no effect because it is not wisdom that is derived from God. And we derive our wisdom, we draw our strength by fearing God, right? Relying upon him, giving absolute, setting our absolute hope and dependence upon him. Follow along then again in verses 13 and following through through verse 18. The Lord looks down from heaven and beholds all the children of men. Note note the contrast. The size of the Lord, the place of the Lord. He's high above. From the habitation of his dwelling, he considers all those who dwell on the earth. He fashions all the hearts of them and understands all their works. There is no king who can be saved by a mighty host. Neither is any mighty man delivered by great strength. A horse is considered a vain hope to save a man. Neither shall it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the psalmist says, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him. Now we're getting close. No longer is God far away and distant, dwelling the heavens, now he's close enough where we can see his eye. His eye is upon those who fear him and upon those who put their trust in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to feed them in the time of famine. Again, the psalmist is clear. He's crystal clear. Human strength does not measure up to God's strength. Because he is the one who fashioned us, we did not create him. He is the one who knows us comprehensively in and out because we are the ones whom he has made. Just like a potter knows his pots and all the little marks, or a woodturner knows all the little marks that are made on the lathe, he knows us comprehensively. We cannot even comprehend the nature of his being. Let's talk about the Trinity sometime. He is the one who is high and lifted up who sits upon the heavens, we are the ones who live below on the earth that he fashioned, that he made, that he created. Therefore, the psalmist concludes that whatever strength or power that resides in this created world that he made, whether it be human or animal or technological, those powers are not strong enough to deliver or save your soul from death, or even your body from famine when it comes. Now all of this leads the psalmist to affirm patient trust in God. Verse 19 Our soul has patiently waited for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. The psalmist is saying all of this is true, and as a result, we have put all of our patient trust in God. He is the one who protects us. How does the psalmist affirm patient trust in God? With creaturely humility. With creaturely humility. He recognizes and accepts that God as the creator is the ground and source of all of life and vitality. Wisdom and strength. We are not. Go back to Psalm 103 that we looked at. Ash Wednesday, again, we're going to find that that true perspective that was given to us then is getting rehashed over and over again in the Psalms. It is a foundational perspective for the psalmist, whether it be David or any other of the psalmist here. We are not the one who is the ground of source, the ground and source of all of life. Therefore, the psalmist says, don't trust yourself. He says, trust yourself less. Put less confidence in you and more confidence in Jesus. More confidence in God. Trust God. Now the psalmist's gift of patient trust and his key, be less confident in yourself and more confident in God, strikes at the heart of what our culture values most. It strikes at the heart of what our culture values most, like an axe or a hatchet striking the tender roots of a sapling and just cuts it clean off. And so, this gift for us, if we really think about it, is hard to receive. It's hard to receive the gift of patient trust. It's hard to receive because our fondest and most compelling cultural stories elevate the ideal of self reliance. I don't think I need to enumerate them. You can easily come up with one. The hero journey of our culture in our favorite movies and songs is about finding yourself, about being true to yourself, looking within, digging deep down, pulling up that power that resides within you, that strength that you possess to press on, to be free from any external constraints, to live happily. And within this framework, our society defines sin as betrayal of yourself. Betrayal of yourself. Yet the Bible defines sin as choosing yourself. Choosing yourself. Over and over, our cultural heroes, at the climactic moment of the best movies, dig deep and choose to honor themselves. And then they rise from victimhood or whatever place of abstract poverty they are, to a place where they can now assert themselves on the world. Luke Skywalker? Anyone? Daniel LaRusso? I mean, that's got a... That's that's having a new life now recently with Netflix, right? Harry Potter? Anna and Elsa? From Frozen? Anyone? Each one has to discover their true selves within... Their deep and profound inner strength in order to save themselves and those they love. But in the Bible, in every narrative, in every story, that is identified as sin, as a departure from God, and it's shown ultimately to lead to death. It may have a, a nice sugary coating on the outside, but once you eat it on the inside, it's rotten. Every character, Every person in the Bible that chooses self discovers this truth, that in choosing oneself, you lose your life. You don't find it, and you can't save it. You discover that there is no king or queen, man or woman, who can be saved by the number of one's army, or the size of one's bank or retirement account, or the power of one's mind and intellect, or the strength of one's body, you discover that our technology that harnesses the power of the natural world like a bridle would harness the power of a horse is ultimately a vain hope. A vain hope. One of the saddest examples of someone who chooses self in the Bible is Judas. Judas. And it ends for him where it will end for you in loneliness and death. Now in utter contrast, The Bible's hero story is about dying to yourself, being true to God's will. It's about looking outside of oneself and drawing upon the wisdom and strength of another. Jesus is the pioneer of this hero hero story, this hero journey. In obedience to the Father, he takes on human flesh He experiences every sort of human trial, temptation, and suffering with a patient trust in his loving Father that says, Not me, but you. Less of me, more of you. When it comes to the climactic moment of his life, he dies to himself, choosing to follow the Father's will. Listen to his words in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. And he dies a cursed death. But then, the most surprising, beautiful, and meaningful plot twist in all of human history occurs. Jesus' death paradoxically opens up the way to new life, not only for himself, but for everyone who turns to him with repentance for sin, trusting in his grace. And in turn, he offers his hero journey to us. He freely gives it to us in and through the waters of baptism. Again, we're coming to the waters of baptism to baptize Eleanor. And again, God will will give her, Jesus will give her his hero journey as her own. Here, we are united to him and his hero journey. We die here to ourselves, we are drowned, but we rise in him to new resurrection life. Through these waters, God delivers our soul from death by his son's death. And by his resurrection, he energizes and empowers us for life with his Holy Spirit. And after we, we rise out of this flood to new life in Jesus, it is by trust, by patience, trust that we carry on in the way of Jesus saying and living out less of me more of you less of me more of you it is by patient trust that we draw down on the wisdom and the strength of Jesus our true and faithful hero to guide us through every trial and to deliver us from every temptation and to walk us through every moment of suffering It is by patient trust that we do this. And so trust yourself less. Put less confidence in you. And trust Jesus more. Put every confidence in him. One way that we could say that is remember your baptism. And you need to be doing that this morning as we watch this baptism. And then I would also ask you, this is Lent, so we need to do self-examination. Which hero journey does your life embody? Is it the one that turns inward to the self to seek power and strength and wisdom or is it one that dies to self and seeks that outside of you from God alone? It's so easy to live with a double mind saying you believe one thing and living out a completely different belief. So don't be double-minded. Don't do it. Because if you want to grow in Christian maturity, then you have to stop being double-minded. Stop saying you believe in God, but living like you don't. That's why we're baptized and given the Spirit of God, who empowers us to live alternatively. Live like you trust God. And trust often happens when God says something we disagree with. When he says something that doesn't line up with our own intuitions and instincts, and in that moment, in an act of trust, we say to Jesus, not me, but you not me but you. Through baptism, God enables us to say, not me but you. And by the practices of Lent, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, he trains us to continue to say, not me but you. So this morning, receive the gift of patient trust, saying, not me but you. Say that with me. Not me but you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.